Welcome to Notes on Vulnerability, a podcast designed to put stories of resilience, courage and being human at the heart of the conversation. This podcast is all about vulnerability, something that we all feel but many of us shy away from. Vulnerability is often misconstrued and for that reason I want to start this podcast by setting out the definition that I'm using here and that is to show up, to let yourself be seen and to be completely honest about who you are, how you feel, what you think, what you want, what you believe without having any control over what the consequences of that might be. Sounds pretty simple doesn't it? But when you put it into the context of something like public speaking, telling someone you love them, coming out, leaving your job, recording a podcast on vulnerability, (laughs) then it doesn't seem quite so simple. It takes a lot of courage to identify and challenge a dominant narrative and a lot of vulnerability too. Man up is one of those phrases I think we've all got used to using without really thinking about it. The general meaning is to tell someone to deal with something more bravely than they have. On the face of it, it's not a nasty phrase, there's no swear words, and often it isn't horribly meant, but it carries with it the weight of a whole narrative of what many people would label toxic masculinity, i.e. I am judging you to have fallen below the standard of what it means to be a brave man, which is the optimum standard that we should all hold ourselves to. When you deconstruct it like that, it's actually pretty mean and very judgmental. It has the potential to trigger that burning feeling of shame and not being good enough. I also think it's pretty manipulative if you're using it against someone else. Manipulative and arrogant, because who are we to tell other people that they're falling below some undefined, mercurial, invisible standard? To be honest, I have just as much dislike for other gendered phrases, like put your big girl pants on, or even woman up. I'd kind of like to just replace them all with you do you. But there's something about man up that is particularly undermining, and I'd imagine that's especially so if you identify as a man. You might be listening to me right now and thinking, honestly, it's just a throwaway phrase. Why does it even matter? Maybe it feels like I'm being too politically correct or it's all just a bit snowflake. I've heard arguments like this before when I've challenged people where language is being carelessly used or casually used as a weapon. The thing is, language really does matter. The way that we talk to other people, the way we speak to ourselves, it heavily influences how we experience life and how we make others feel. It affects what we pass on to the next generation, how we treat people we get close to, even the ads and marketing we use in business and the way we write our news. It's also a big influence on whether we feel like it's okay to experience the entire spectrum of human emotion and be unapologetically and happily ourselves, or whether we feel like we need to man up, get over it or pipe down. We're recording this episode of Notes on Vulnerability in Men's Health Week, which makes it especially relevant. Men's Health Week raises awareness of the health issues that affect men disproportionately and focuses on getting men to become more aware of health problems that they may have or could develop and gain the courage to do something about it. Talking and sharing is one of the most powerful ways we can help each other and ourselves. But there's no getting away from the fact that we live in a culture that has historically removed that as an option for men on some topics. My guest on this episode of Notes on Vulnerability has set out to challenge that. First of all, by taking on the term man up and everything it represents. Jamie Clements hosts the Man Down podcast, which is all about men's mental health and an anchor for what he calls the anti-man up movement. He's used his platform to have conversations about a whole range of topics from spirituality to sex and gender, grief, repression and male suicide, all the topics that don't really fit within the acceptable definition of male banter. The way he's approached it feels incredibly purposeful. 
It's clear that he's intentionally gone to the places that he recognises as challenging for anyone who identifies as a man. Jamie is also a breathwork coach and in some ways a bit of a millennial poster boy. He's a co-founder of the startup Sesame, which offers a monthly membership to people looking to gain access to members clubs in London. Until April this year, he worked at 11FS, which creates digital financial services for banks. He also recently became an entrepreneur in residence at MindUp, which is a startup designed to offer a range of mental health solutions. He probably could have just breezed through life drinking oat milk lattes in private members clubs without ever having conversations with strangers online about faith, panic attacks or vulnerability, but he hasn't. One of the areas that Jamie has ventured into is relationships. I personally feel like the narratives that come from phrases like man up can be particularly problematic when it comes to relationships and sex because they tend to shut down conversation and leave no room for discomfort or difference. You're either normal, which is an awful word, or you're not. Getting away from that is essential for making relationships easier to navigate, so these feel like important conversations to be having. I've actually never interviewed another podcaster before, especially one with a brief quite similar to my own, so let's see what he has to say. Jamie, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So let's start with your podcast. Um, yes. What made you start Man Down? Oh, it's a very good question. Um, so for me, it, it all came out of my own journey with mental health, unsurprisingly. I think for, for a lot of people who operate in this space, it comes from personal and, and lived experience. Um, I dealt with depression in my, my late teens and then later um, anxiety and, and panic attacks in my early 20s um, to the point where I really, I probably in hindsight would describe it as, as rock bottom um, and that was about, that was the end of 2018, so yeah, about two and a half years ago and um, I then went through a, a, a real process of, of introspection and, and sort of self-reflection um, and learned a lot about myself, started therapy, had a, a, a brief time on antidepressants, um, found breath work, which was a big part of that, that shift for, for me as well. And um, a lot of the things that I was realizing about myself and, and where I'd been with my mental health, to me tied back to my experience growing up as a a boy growing up as a young man and, and the role that masculinity plays within that. Um, so that really was, was where it began. And then in the middle of 2019, while I was deep in, in the midst and in the depths of my own um, journey, for want of a better word, um, I lost a, a friend from school to suicide. And those two things together um, really were the, the catalyst in, you know, rather a, a tragic sense for for me taking a, a hell of a lot more accountability and responsibility for my own mental health and really realizing that I needed to, to help myself in a way that I hadn't wanted to or or felt the need to before and a sense that I wanted to do something a bit beyond just helping myself uh, and I remember you know in the days after um, my friend died speaking with some of my oldest friends about my mental health that I'd never, you know, I'd never had those conversations with them before. So I just really felt an urge and a need, you know, we see the statistics as well, that everyone is now unfortunately very familiar with around men's suicide um, and male suicide. Um, 
and it just felt like I, I I've always been interested in psychology and the mind and sociology and it just felt like the right thing and I actually landed on the name man down before it was a podcast I, I just was like okay this is where I want to take it I want to help men I want to work with men on this, this stuff um, and then I was at a, a men's event later that year and heard Ben Bidwell um, talking about his journey with, with mental health and I was like wow the, the energy in this room the connection that 120 men having was unlike anything I'd ever seen before and it was as a result of someone sharing their vulnerability and um, that for me was something that I was like okay I want to bottle that and I want to mass produce it essentially and, and get it out in front of as many people as possible so um, yeah that's sort of the, the root of it all. So I feel like we might have had the same realisation at one point that vulnerability is kind of the key and the portal to everything, uh, which is awesome. Um, have there been any moments when you've been recording podcasts when your own vulnerability has sort of risen up and you found it a bit challenging? It's a, it, Yeah, uh, the, the answer to that is, is no, but there's a reason why. And that reason why is I put myself in a very comfortable position by being on the other side of the microphone. I became extremely comfortable having these conversations and holding that space for other people and got away with convincing myself and probably convincing a lot of other people that I was being very vulnerable by holding that space. And I was putting out what I have now termed and I'm trademarking, I'm not actually trademarking, but what I've now termed as filtered vulnerability, where I'm putting out a very uh, and I think social media has a lot to answer for for this more broadly of almost this sort of I heard someone describe it the other day as fetishizing vulnerability and you know there's been a huge shift people like Brené Brown bringing huge amounts of publicity and, and awareness to vulnerability as a positive and I'm absolutely behind that but I was definitely putting out this filtered version where it wasn't fully me and it wasn't fully vulnerable but it was it was halfway there and so I've had to, you know, really front up to that recently um, in the last, probably the last, probably in 2021, I think I've probably really dug into that and tried to figure out why it is. And so, yeah, I've, I've definitely felt my vulnerabilities come up, but I wasn't putting them out necessarily. In a, a, but just because of where I was sat in the conversation, I think it, it became quite easy and comfortable not to put mm -hmm. it out in all its glory. Um, and now for any guest podcast that I do, which I love doing, it's very nice to be on the other side of the microphone. Um, I now am committing fully and wholeheartedly to putting out the, the real version and the, the full, the full, fully vulnerable version. Like, I think, I think that's maybe the first step everyone goes through with vulnerability because you can't go straight from, you know, being a regular person to suddenly being really vulnerable because you get that vulnerability hangover and it feels too terrifying you don't do it again yeah um but it's really admirable that you have recognized that and sort of what steps are you taking now is it just being on guest podcasts or i think it's um the blocker for me the the thing that was lit, holding me back from really diving into it because i remember the first time I spoke publicly, and it was just a post I did on my Instagram at the end of 2019, I remember, you know, throwing my phone across the room, going out for a walk for half an hour and crying quite a lot, 
because of that fear of you know what people might think and the judgment mm. and all of those things that come up when you are vulnerable publicly um and so for me i think yeah the steps that i'm taking it, it really comes back to you know, this sort of radical self-honesty and, and trying not to fool myself because i think we are the easiest people to fool um and so that has been been a big part of it and then also realizing and accepting this belief that I had around um, if I'm going to be championing mental health, championing vulnerability, then I have to be good. I, I can't wobble. I can't be fallible, which is really just incredibly backwards as to what mm. the truth of it is, because if I'm championing vulnerability, then I should be being vulnerable. Um, so I had this, this sort of narrative where I was like, no, you have to, it was almost a little bit of this masculinity piece as well, where I was like, I still have to be strong in order to hold that space for other people. Um, and I did a post a few weeks ago when I was having a particularly tough time that is like, you know, the, the most, I don't like talking in these terms because social media isn't always my best friend, but the most engagement I've ever had on a post, and it was a picture of me crying and a very, very open post about how tough things have been. And that was that was a real light bulb moment for me being like okay like that's that's real that's reality within you know within the realm of social media obviously but um yeah so just taking a slightly different approach to when i have these kinds of conversations um and i think just striving for a little bit more consistency across my private and my public self um, not that I'm a huge public figure by any means, but yeah, just sort of aiming and hoping and striving for that consistency where I can. So have you, I mean, obviously we worry about the reactions of other people when you put out a podcast or even when you put anything up on social media, however small or large you're following, have you ever had anyone react really badly to something you've put out? Because some of the topics that you've covered are that they're not, controversial as in like you're not seeking controversy but topics like suicide or faith for example they can be quite controversial has it ever sort of kicked up a shitstorm? Uh, to be honest no and I think that would be my advice to anyone who is feeling that fear is um you own well maybe I'm lucky in this sense and this might not always be the case but from experience the only people I hear from are the it's the positive feedback. That's the only. That's the overwhelming feedback I get, and and that was what was so validating, so reassuring when I first ever started speaking about my own mental health. Um, was just quite how supportive people that you know people that you don't know, people that you do know, people that you haven't seen for years and years, your close friends, your not so close friends, everybody, and I think the people who aren't interested or don't care for whatever reason. But that that doesn't particularly come up for me. Um, I've had a couple of people take uh, issue, I suppose, with the name and with the, the concept itself. I think people who are very tied to traditional or what I would deem traditional masculinity. Um, that's really where I've only had you know some interesting conversations, but also people who have been quite open to having a non-confrontational discussion about what it's all about because I do think the name in itself can be quite um, confronting in a way or affronting 
um, for people who are still tied to this slightly more traditional notion of, of what being a man is. Mm. Which is kind of the reason that you're doing it, right? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, I think that for me, I, I, yeah, it's gone, I think it's meant to be, yeah, it's meant to be quite in your face in a way to make people stop and think and, um, yeah, I've realised recently, and I don't know how I can apply this to work, but I have a, a little bit of a knack for, for naming things and, like, branding stuff. Um, and that was, that's why I, I, when people always talk, talk, talk about the name, that is something that I had, you know, six months before I even decided I wanted to do a podcast, as I mentioned mm-hmm. at the start. So um, I'm glad that it's it's kind of become what it's become and, and has quite a strong message behind it as well. Did you choose the name Sesame for your other business? No, so that was actually, I can't remember who came up with that. There was three of us, there's now four of us, there was three of us, and I think we went round the houses and landed on all sorts of apprentice-style team names, like (laughs) Synergy and Helix and all of these horrible, horrible names that belong on The Apprentice. and yeah, I think then, I think I maybe I did. I don't want to take all the credit if I didn't. But um, yeah, it, as I'm sure people might be, well, if they're not familiar with the company, maybe not, but it's about sort of open, open sesame yeah. and opening up, opening up London, essentially. Um, and then, yeah, we, I remember we, we had, we're going far too into the depths of where the company began, but we had sort of a founding member base and we called them the Sesame Seeds which is horrible <laughs> and ter- terrible, but it, it worked for us, so, yeah. Um, how comfortable are you with making mistakes? I'm getting better, I think is probably the short answer. Um, I have very high expectations of myself. I have always been, the word perfectionist gets thrown around a lot, but I would probably fall into that category. Um, I, yeah, can be quite hard on myself um, and have come from a place of relative insecurity around what other people think of me as well. I'm quite definitely of the people pleaser ilk um, and working working on that. Um, so yeah, mistakes are difficult, but I'm definitely, uh, I'm very comfortable now or much more comfortable than I ever have been holding my hands up and admitting when I've made a mistake that's not to say that it feels any better but I'm very open to kind of admitting that so other than man up what do you think are the most problematic narratives where male mental health is concerned oh there's there's you know idioms are they idioms I don't know if they're idioms but phrases you know similar to man up like boys don't cry or um I suppose on the flip side you're acting like a girl um, and it's, it's anything that's I suppose hyper polarizing and I know you said in, in the intro you know that we should scrap all of that and go with you know you do you and I think that is at the crux of it so I think um, encouraging individualism but not hyper independence so I think we're very good at promoting individualism as being like you know go out and do everything yourself, do it for you. But that also can lead to loneliness in a a sort of different way. Um, But yeah, I think for me, a lot of the the narratives 
um, you know, I'm, I'm even quite resistant and I don't know exactly where this comes from, but, you know, the, the phrase or the term toxic masculinity brings up a bit of resistance for me. And I know there are some interesting conversations going on around, you know, is that actually doing more harm than than good? Just identifying it as toxic masculinity, because even if it even if it isn't what you mean, it might be taken as men to to feel as if being ma- a man is toxic, and that is where the polarization, the defensiveness starts to come up, and that's something that I saw a lot around. Um, when there was obviously everything going on with the discussions around male violence towards women was that this identification of your privilege, your male privilege, when that gets presented to you, there are sort of two usual responses. One of them is to accept it, to acknowledge it and to try and do better. And the other is to get really, really defensive and to go down fighting. Um, And so I think anything that we can do to make the conversation about gender equality to make the conversation about patriarchy about how it can benefit everybody rather than us versus them is a is a good thing so that for me i think is uh, i guess centers around a lot of the narratives that i see as problematic are the ones that polarize the ones that demonize the ones that stop making everyone feel human and make you feel like part of a certain group which obviously you know there are different societal groups and various things like that but at the core of it we are all very much human and so i think as much as we can do to move away from that polarization i think that's where the change starts to happen because i've I've talked quite a lot in the past about patriarchy and i think for a lot of people as soon as you start bashing the patriarchy they assume that you're attacking men Mm. and that's not it at all I think so much of the negative of the patriarchy has been identified in the ways it's negatively impacted women but it's also just sort of coming to light in the ways it's massively negatively impacted men and that is a lot of what we see playing out in men's mental health and the fact that the whole narrative from as, as long as patriarchy has been in place has been around emotional repression and disconnection and stiff upper lip and all of these things we see feeding into men who are highly highly disconnected from their emotional experience yeah i mean i get this sort of objection to toxic masculinity um, and i've definitely seen people objecting to the use of the word patriarchy. I mean, in many ways, the the patriarchy, or the patriarchy, however you want to pronounce it, um, is a power structure, and it operates to serve the people at the top of it, and we're all sort of manipulated by it. Um, So it's overcoming the lack of awareness around it seems like a big first step. But I do come across a lot of people who identify as men who aren't willing to see that. They feel like if they sort of say oh yeah I agree the patriarchy is you know making life difficult for all of us that they're giving up a part of themselves as a man yeah I think so um there's a great Brené Brown quote um and it was around the time of of everything that was going on last summer with and that continues to go on with with Black Lives Matters and um racism 
and um, I think it applies as much in the gender equality discussion as, as it does there, which is that the people that think that power is finite will go down fighting. So I think anybody who thinks that a, an attack on the, the patriarchy is an attack on their individual ability to succeed or their power or their abundance or whatever it might be will put up a fight and will get defensive mm -hmm. and so i think that is where the awareness the conversation the education needs to be steered towards is saying no no no, we're trying to help you as well this isn't about just because we want to change the structure that we operate in doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden gonna be the bottom of the food chain and i think i had a guest on who we, we basically got onto this topic of the gender equality debate and his point was that how in any way should this be a debate? It's like, do you want gender equality? Yes or no? Yes, okay, great, no, okay, what the hell are you talking about? Like, there shouldn't be a debate, it should be a gender equality issue that we talk about and work towards, but I think anyone who is debating against gender equality probably needs to, to take a, a fairly hard look in the mirror as to, as to why. Well, I guess the answer is probably privilege, isn't it? it? It benefits them to not have equality. Yeah. Well, they think it does. And I'm, I'm othering them by calling them they, which isn't really fair. Um, but I feel like that's the sort of motivation. And I don't know if I'm about to do that to you, but I wanted to ask, you don't interview many women on your podcast. Um, I realise it's a podcast that's aimed at people who identify as men, but it feels a little bit like the message is that women don't have much to offer where to offer to men where mental health is concerned or kind of inspiration or so I just wanted to put that to you in a non-confrontational way <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it um, <laughs> I, I do appreciate it uh, it's it's something that I have uh, gone back and forth and round and round and up and down on since since the podcast began and uh, it was it's a question that's been asked of me quite a few times by people very close to me, people not very close to me. Um, and I would never want it to come across as that in, in terms of, I suppose the, the reason the podcast began was to have men share their story and their lived experience of mental health to give other men listening the permission to acknowledge their own mental health and hold a bit of a mirror up and that for me is the power of specificity to an extent as to this person looks sounds thinks like me and they're having a similar experience and that for me is the best way for someone to acknowledge that that experience sorry there's some building work lovely starting outside my window um, <laughs> so that is i think where it began it has since changed and, and morphed and that is still the core of it is is guest interviews where i speak with men about their lived experience of mental health the areas where women have featured and you're right it's not been many um have been on topics where i do think there is crossover and it's issues that affect men and women for example sex dating um and that will be something that continues so i um, I've recently kind of released a, a subset of, of the podcast called The Breakdown, which is about breaking down different types of mental health support. And 
my guests so far on that have both all three have been women so far just because of the nature i think of the people i know in that in those fields um and the more i think i go into topic specific elements mm. i think it will naturally lead to a more diverse i suppose from a gender perspective a more diverse um guest profile um so yeah without kind of i realized i went on a little ramble there which i didn't want to come over as overly defensive but um i think that was me very much thinking out loud as to you know why is that and and where do i personally see that gender diversity coming into to the guests i appreciate the honesty um, but do you think you're reinforcing gender stereotypes a bit by only having women come in and talk about things like sex and dating? I hadn't thought about it like that. For me, I was approaching it from a perspective of um, I think it's actually important for men to have a female perspective on these topics. And quite often, um, for, I'm recording next week on a, on relationships, I've actually ha- have a a couple who are coming on as, as my guests to sort of get both sides. Um, it's a really good question. Uh, I, I'd like to think no, but if I am, then I would definitely be willing to do something about it. I wonder if it might be interesting for men to sort of hear a female perspective on something they've only ever had a male perspective on, whether that is, I don't know, extreme sport or, you know, traditionally male areas. Not to identify with it but to sort of get insight or anyway it's your podcast you do what you want yeah. with it it just that's no, something absolutely. that just came up came yeah to no I, I i'm always and i guess this comes back to it's not i guess i wouldn't call it a mistake but it comes back to what we're saying about mm. you know are we good at take, taking it's not even criticism but like constructive discussion around something that is quite personal to to you as an individual and um yeah, I, I just find it really interesting and valuable and I'm grateful to have that, that insight. Um, and I do think there's probably some, it, I think for me, the podcast has just taken on a course naturally. Um, and this might be exposing myself, but without too much strategy behind it, um, I've never really stopped to think, you know, where do I want to take this beyond this new part of it? Um, but I do definitely, definitely agree and I think there's a lot of, of value and, and equally um, for context as well 50% my gender split of listeners is 50-50 mm. and um, that's actually sorry I'm gonna I'm thinking out loud again but um, the reasoning behind a lot of my female listeners I actually reached out to a lot of my female listeners just to kind of understand where they were coming from um, in listening to, to the podcast that in my head originally was designed for men by men and all of the feedback was um, I want to understand how to support the men in my life better and that for me is incredible and actually mm-hmm. I think uniquely feminine as a trait and it's something that I would without generalising massively um, think men are particularly or the masculine not men the masculine is not particularly good at um, holding that sort of space it's, the mm. feminine is much more inquisitive much more emotionally aware much more about proactively looking to support um, 
And so I do think there would probably be a lot of value for my male listeners in hearing, you know, almost not blindsiding them, but sort of bringing in female guests to give a different perspective and, and learn what the female experience of mental, lived experience of mental health would be like, for example. Mm. I would probably have to challenge you a bit there, because I think maybe if you grow up as female, you are taught to to do those things. I'm not sure they are inherently, like, that they come from inherently being or identifying as female. I think maybe you're taught to, to consider male interests and stuff like that. Um, I mean, we could go round and round on this stuff. Yeah. It, it is a really difficult topic, and I appreciate you being open to it, because you do feel a bit like you're sort of treading on eggshells, because it's hard. And I think, uh, just one final point on that, I think that for me is where a lot of discussions around feminism, gender equality, mo- a lot of social issues come from, is that the, the privileged party, or the, um, yeah, I think the, the people in position of privilege, or the people who are, uh, I suppose, coming at it from a difficult perspective, or not a lived experience perspective, are terrified of saying the wrong thing. Mm. Men are terrified of saying the wrong thing about feminism. White people, again, big generalization, are terrified about saying the wrong thing when it comes to issues of, of racism. And that is one of the biggest blockers, I think, to progress, is that people aren't willing to mm. have this kind of conversation where I will openly admit, like, there's discomfort there, but I kind of view it as healthy discomfort in the sense that it's like, oh, this is really making me think. I hope I don't say something horribly stupid. Um, but that, for me, is where a lot of the blockers to progress come from, is people, we are afraid of making mistakes and afraid of being attacked for those mistakes. And mm-hmm. that is why I think a lot of people are sitting in their comfort zone, sitting in their privilege and, and not stepping towards these issues. I think the only thing you can do is to do what you've done, which is to be willing to be wrong. That's a lesson I learned, I have learned over the past year and a half in terms of my race and my racial privilege. Um, and coming up against that feeling of sort of trying to explain it or justify it and then actually, you know, you just have to admit, you know, that you benefit from this, you know, it's it's hard stuff. Mm, um, it but, really is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's that that acknowledgement of privilege is extremely uncomfortable mm. for anybody, regardless of the issue. Um, it, 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 uh, you just have to learn, you have to educate yourself, you have to be willing, as you said, to, to make mistakes and, and accept that. Um, so yeah, no, I, I do, I, I've grown and, and learned to, to enjoy these kinds of conversations as best I can. <laughs> That's such a huge skill. Um, okay, so slightly more frivolous question. <laughs> I was going to ask you who your dream podcast guest would be. Can I take a guess and say Matt Haig? It's, he's up there. Yeah, he's, <laughs> I'd say he's probably number one. Um, there are there's a, there's a quite a long list. I think um, for me, Matt Haig is definitely up there. Um, there's sports sports people um, like Joe Marler, the rugby player, um, who's done a lot of work around this topic as well. Um, God, I'm trying to think who else. 
Um, Freddie Flintoff, I'd love to speak to him about his experiences of, of disordered eating mm-hmm. um, that he's been quite open about. Um, I should probably say a, a, a woman, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> um, I, I actually think that there's a long list that I actually have on my, my computer. Um, but yeah, Matt Haig is, is definitely up there as, as number one, I think. So some of the topics you cover are quite sort of, I mean, woo-woo is not a term that I particularly like, but they are. So how, how woo are you? I'm more woo than people realise, I would say. Um, I don't, I, I try and avoid that as well, but it's, it's probably the best way to describe, it's a simple way to describe scepticism towards spirituality is what, is how I would, would describe woo-woo. Um, I, yeah, I, so I come from a relatively traditional, stereotypical, middle-class, white uh, private school um, traditional masculine rugby playing corporate Russell Group University background and um, I didn't realise you could list so many privileges in one sentence (laughs) but um, that for me doesn't necessarily lend itself to spirituality um, and and I suppose openness to those sorts of things but yeah I'm definitely I'm probably I'm, I'm coming to terms with being more open about my spirituality I think I have a lot of resistance to it um, again mainly fears of fears of judgment fears of, of what people will think um, but obviously through my work with breathwork there are big spiritual elements and things that I have felt myself um, so yeah, I think it depends where people sit on the uh, the woo woo spectrum, in the sense that to some people I probably seem really, really quite spiritual, and to other people they probably think, oh, who, who's this guy? Um, so yeah, I'm probably more more spiritual than than my Instagram, for example, would would let on. Um, but yeah, I think that's yeah, I still definitely have some resistance to it. So how would you define your spirituality? This is a, a great question. It's a question I've asked myself quite recently. I think um, the reason I've been asking myself that question is because I'm not sure what my best answer is. And I think what I landed on was that to me, it's an understanding, an acknowledgement, an acceptance that there are things at play bigger than me that I might not understand that I might not be able to tangibly touch, feel, observe, um, but an an acceptance of that and an appreciation of that. Okay, so let's go from the spiritual to the the rather more practical. Um, From what I can tell, and I, I don't know you, and I haven't looked that deeply into your sort of work history, you seem to already be quite a successful entrepreneur. Um... That journey might have must have included a few white knuckle moments. Yeah, I I I would say I'm relatively early into my entrepreneurial journey, which brings up all kinds of resistance in me because I feel like I've just sounded like I'm applying for the apprentice. You don't like the word entrepreneurial, do you? (laughs) I uh, yeah, there's I I I'm gonna dig into that. I've got therapy later today. (laughs) Bring that up. 
I don't like the word journey either for some reason. So entrepreneurial journey brings up. So all I just of I just nailed it there with everything. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I turned relatively early in that that experience. Um, uh, a lot of my my work experience, my time in work, um, has been spent in startups um, and in, in more specifically in in sales roles. So it is all of the things you expect. It is fast paced. It's um, high pressure it is um unforgiving at times and i think that is probably where um those white knuckle moments have have come in i think um probably more so recently uh in leaving full-time work that's probably the the thing that has caused the most fear the most resistance but also the most excitement and and freedom in equal measure um and yeah, I'm, I'm naturally, funnily enough, quite a, a risk-averse person. I'm, I'm quite a cautious person by all accounts, but um, I've learned through work and through my experiences of, of helping to grow businesses that I thrive best uh, on autonomy. And so now being self-employed and, and building my own, what I would view as purpose-led businesses, um, brings me a lot of joy, a lot of excitement and a lot of uh, motivation and drive in a way that I've probably not experienced before. So what for you is the most vulnerable thing um, about being self-employed? It's also the best thing, which is that every the buck stops with me. Mm. Uh, there is no one to, to pass work on to, there's no one to uh, uh, there's no one to answer to but there's also no one to ask to um so that for me is probably the most vulnerable thing is that everything that i do and, and again this is a, a limiting belief that i am working through um everything i do is 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 me and a lot of the work that i do now with the podcast and my breathwork business i am the brand and i have a real fear of being seen um and those two don't always marry up particularly well. So um, that for me is, is probably the biggest vulnerability is that, you know, for me, this work is one man band. It's all me, I am the face of it. I have to have the, the knowledge, the, the expertise and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, you're very exposed in a lot of ways. And I think that for me is, is probably where the, the vulnerability comes up the most. Do you have moments when you just spiral into what what the fuck am I doing? You know what? Um, my spirals are slightly different to that. I think I uh, my one of my core values is is freedom. Um, and if someone said, "Where do you want to be in in five, ten years?" I wouldn't be able to tell them. A place or a job but I would be able to describe a feeling and that for me that feeling seems to be centered around freedom and and independence within myself um, and so I don't spiral as to oh god I need to run back to full-time work I more spiral in the sense of there's a, there's self-doubt there around is this the right thing do people want this are they going to like it um, and I'm very good at procrastinating my way out of doing what I really need to do and I'll find I'm a, I've described myself 
recently as a magpie because I'm very easily distracted by shiny things. And by shiny things, I mean new ideas. I have loads of ideas and that I, you know, I could have started something new every day this week if I wanted to. So I've had to be quite firm and committed to what I'm working on right now. Um, so those are the spirals, I think, more case of am I doing the right thing rather than should I be working for myself, I think. What kind of tools do you have for when the self-doubt really hits? <sighs> I'm working on it. Um, for me, I this is a, a silly one because it's tied a lot to external validation to a certain extent, but... I have a folder on my phone, and I, not many people know this, um, of screenshots of messages that I've been sent about the podcast and about my breathwork. And that for me, when you are doing work that at the core of it is about helping other people, to know that you actually have helped other people really helps. Uh, and I, I think that is, for me, something, I sometimes forget I have the folder and I have to you know, sort of remember and go and have a look at it. And I'm like, okay, like this, this makes sense again. Like this is, this is why I do it. And that for me has always been the thing with the podcast from when I had, you know, two listeners to where I am now with it was if I can help one person, that's what I said before I started it was if I can help one person, then that's a, a good thing. Um, now there's a car alarm going off. Good. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you can hear um, my dog snoring. We've just got everything today. Yeah, we've got it all. Um, and there was actually a really good quote that I um, saw today about imposter syndrome that um, said, if you're invited to the table, someone sees your worth. Be present without asking why me. You don't need to question your value when people show you how relevant you are. Imposter syndrome will reduce your ability to be present in spaces that you worked hard to get into. Stop minimizing your achievements by pretending that things happened out of nowhere. And that I'm going to print off and frame and put on my wall mm. because that pretty much describes the headspace that I cycle through quite often is why me? Who am I to? And that's where my fear around being seen comes from as well. I think it's like, who am I to be telling these people this thing or sharing this information? And to remember, you know, I've worked really hard to get to where I am. I've worked really hard and it's very easy to forget that in the moment. Um, so, yeah, I think that that folder always gives me the, the sort of day to day boost. But then coming back to, to things like that around, you know, I'm here for a reason. I'm doing this for a reason. Um, and also knowing that it's underpinned by my values and my my kind of internal purpose as well purpose is such an incredibly powerful clear power source I think um, let's talk about your breath work and um, because this is your other business so how would you respond to someone who's like well I already know how to breathe <laughs> I'd say oh I'm the first person to ever say that to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I could I could I could give them a very very long answer um, and I'll, I'll avoid, I'll, I'll try my best to avoid doing that. I'm very good at giving lengthy answers when it comes to breath work. But um, this, the simplest way to think about it is that we, we all massively underestimate how we breathe and the impact that breath plays in our 
bodies, but also as a link between our mind and our bodies, our brain and our bodies as well. And the, the way in which that works is that without going into the depths of respiratory biology, um, our autonomic nervous system, the part of our inner workings that governs all of the automatic functions in our body, like breathing, that we can do unconsciously 20,000 times a day. But the breath is the only part of that system that we can consciously control. So it's actually really unique in the sense that it's our most primal form of responding to triggers, responding to external factors, responding to internal factors. And so if you can control your breath, you can control not only the physiological and physical signs of stress and your stress response, but you can also work on the mental and emotional elements of, of your stress response as well. So that would be sort of probably where I'd enter the, the conversation as to, you know, there's a lot more to it than that. And also for me, as someone who is naturally quite skeptical, has certainly come from a place of skepticism around anything, uh, emotion, mental and emotional health, let alone spiritual, um, it's changed my life and that for me I think for anyone who knows me and that's what I've seen in a lot of my friends who I've known for a very long time who traditionally probably wouldn't be very interested in this stuff they all of a sudden are asking questions because they've seen the effect and the impact that it's had on me and so they're like oh like uh, I was looking for something to be skeptical about but all I can see is you know a six foot stack of empirical evidence in front of me um so yeah i think that's sort of where i would would begin with it are you the six foot stack of empirical evidence yes oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't have that many books on well i probably do have that many books but <laughs> um i was going to ask my next question was what made you choose breathwork i guess you've kind of started to cover it there yeah um again uh, lived experience uh big shifts in, in my own life. Um, the combination and, and the way I'm trying to sort of differentiate the different realms of breathwork at the moment is talking about the micro and talking about the macro. So at a micro level, understanding the role the breath plays in the nervous system and in our mind-body link, um, the ability to respond to stresses, respond to anxiety, respond to whatever's going on for you internally. Um, and then as a result, change your breath, implement a, a daily practice, a daily habit. That for me is like been the, the thing that's stuck throughout. And that for me is like the micro. The macro is the slightly more spiritual work, the deeper healing modalities of breath work, where we're digging into um, trauma that is imprinted on our nervous system and clearing that, processing that. Um, and those are experiences that have really created big changes for me and given me insight to things that have really helped shift my perspective, change how I view things, how I feel within myself. And so it's sort of the combination of the two that has really gone from it being something that, you know, has helped, you know, it's a, a practice that works for me to being something that I'm like, right, this is real, it's tangible, it's here, it works, something we all have access to and I'm going to keep banging the drum about it basically so yeah that's kind of where it's where it's coming from for me so as you know when we first decided to do this podcast i did some polls on instagram about dating and mm. um, i know you're not an expert but i'm still going to ask your opinion as someone who's willing to be vulnerable about this topic because it's one that a lot of people find hard to talk about i think 
Um, and also you've interviewed a lot of men, so you might have some sort of collective experiences to bring to the table. So first of all, dating apps. Um, 59% of the people who responded to my poll said that they don't use dating apps. Um, some of the words that they used to describe dating app experiences were soul-destroying, exhausting, draining, generally useless, demotivating, and makes you feel like you're not pretty or fun enough, not much commitment. So like you're a digital native and a man who seems comfortable with getting vulnerable. Um, where do you think dating apps are going wrong? Um, in the same way that Facebook, when it was first created, was created to connect people, dating apps were created to help people find love, find people to, to spend, you know, potentially, you know, their life with. In the same way that Facebook has since been morphed into, you know, something where the users are essentially just a piece of data, the way in which a product has been used beyond its initial use has meant that it fall, it starts to fall down and it starts to stray away from what it was originally intended to be used for. Um, so I actually think it's the way in which we use it that makes them fall down rather than the, the things themselves. I think, you know, I hope they don't mind me saying this, but my sister and uh, my brother-in-law met on, on Bumble about six, six or so years ago. Um, so, and I know plenty of people who have found long-term relationships through dating apps. So it's not like they're flawed at their core and that you can't ever find anyone. But I think the nature of not even necessarily just millennial, but nature of dating, modern dating and modern society in the sense that vulnerability and authenticity as well are quite difficult to come by in first interactions, especially um, means that you're chatting to these people and, and no one's really that comfortable being fully upfront about what they're looking for. Um, and so I think that is where we fall down is that you have to be quite honest with yourself about why you're using the dating app. Are you using it because you want to find casual sex? That's absolutely fine. But are you telling people that? Mm. Are you willing to be upfront? That's vulnerability in a its own sense like are you willing to be honest with not only yourself but also with the other person about your intentions vice versa if you are looking for a relationship are you willing to be open and upfront about that and also be willing to have someone say to you i am not looking for a relationship and to be able to not take that personally because i think we're very very good and very adept at taking things highly personally especially when it comes to dating because it is a sensitive topic that hinges or seemingly hinges a lot on your self-worth and your view of yourself um, and your desirability. Um, so, you know, I've used dating apps, um, limited success, whatever that means. Um, I've, I've dated a few people from dating apps. Um, I don't think I've had a relationship from a dating app, uh, but I do just think it, it probably comes down to how honest we're being with ourselves and how honest we're being with, mm -hmm. with everybody else, which unfortunately I feel is is quite rare mm, yeah. when there are people out there who are looking to people can be manipulative mm. people can play games people can play a game um, and when it is app based and it's slightly less personal you know it's it's tech first <laughs> the 
interpersonality of it, the actual, you know, that natural care of other people um, is slightly diminished because it is, you know, just a case of, of swiping or not responding or whatever it might be. You know, ghosting is a huge, a huge topic when it comes to dating apps. So, yeah, not not the most coherent answer, but I think, yeah, it probably comes down to that, that probably firstly being honest with yourself, but also then secondly being pretty radically honest with, with other people i think it's very easy with dating apps um when i've used them i have found myself trying to win <laughs> to win at dating apps which has translated into getting all the matches getting all the attention you know basically presenting this curated hot version of myself so that i win at all the, the likes and stuff um but like you said I, that then loses the honesty and you forget that you're looking for one person it's not about getting, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people liking you. Um, and I think, I wonder if that's the danger with an app-based sort of setup, is that it becomes about the sort of boom, the match, you know, rather than actually the relationship. Yeah, it, well, it's also, it's that dopamine hit, isn't it? That yeah. every, every platform is set up to give you, to make it as addictive as possible. And that's where that productization of the customer with a lot of tech products comes into play. You know, there are, I think... The benefits to dating apps in the sense that it is I, I have single friends who find it incredibly hard to meet people um, because you know even pre-pandemic um, very very difficult to to meet people and so I do think it has enabled that that expansion of options um, but with that expansion of options there are also negatives to that because people think they have loads and loads of options mm. um, and so can play people and, and mess people around so um, yeah, there's good and, good and bad, I would say, for sure. I actually interviewed the guy who invented the internet, um, so Tim Berners-Lee, quite a, not for this podcast, a while <laughs> ago, um, when, for a writing job. And he, I asked him like whether he felt bad about the internet, which has you know, become this place of such dark and light. Um, and he said kind of what you just said in a way, which is like, the problem isn't the internet, it's the way we use it. Um, I just thought it was quite interesting. Um, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely take that comparison. Yeah, <laughs> I thought you might. Um, okay, so 84% of people who responded to my poll said that they love being single, which I found quite surprising, actually, because I love it, but I know that there are a lot of people who find it um, sort of hard and lonely and, and they constantly feel like they're looking for someone and that the permanent state is being in a couple. Um, so do you think there's still a stigma around being single? I think there's become much less of a stigma around it, potentially to the point where, um, and then this isn't, this is a big generalization because I don't think it's the case for everybody, but, but we've gone to both ends of the spectrum where you're either, and I don't like this word, you're either, as, as you kind of described, like desperate in a way where you're really looking, where you're really striving to find something. And that, to me, screams, you know, you need to work on yourself. You need to figure out why you feel that lack, why you feel that hole, why you feel that desire, that longing to find someone to complete you in a way. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got people who are like, I'm just so good at being single and they almost wear it as a badge of honor. And it's this hyper independence that in a way is also not particularly emotionally healthy because you are cutting yourself. You know, we are social 
beings and so if you're saying i am only single and i have to be single otherwise i won't be happy and prioritizing there are times where to put yourself first you absolutely can prioritize and say you know i want to launch my business so i'm gonna not really look for a relationship or entertain a relationship but if you are focusing on staying single I think that, in a way, again, is is a signifier of something a little bit deeper that might not be obvious from from the surface. Um, but it is, I'd say, I think there's stigma for sure still around being single, um, especially if you're single for a prolonged period of time. Um, but I think more and more we are seeing, either through entrepreneurship or through dating, this idealization and again the kind of fetishization of individualism which if it goes too far becomes quite damaging and it can lead to loneliness and all sorts of things and um yeah i think it's that case that there are there are two ends of the spectrum and um while you shouldn't be looking for someone to complete you i think at whatever point on that spectrum you're at the crux of it is becoming comfortable in in yourself doing you as we talked about throughout it's like you do you and as a result of doing you you'll probably meet someone who also you know is doing them and you build this sort of lovely interdependent relationship where you can still go and launch your business and they will support you and they won't bemoan you for you know spending time on that and maybe working some late nights but also because you'll have that level of communication and maturity to then have that balance and be able to acknowledge when you need to come back and come to the relationship and i think yeah it's it's a really interesting one um and a difficult one but i do think we have to be careful again about this polarization as to what is encouraged and what is um put on a pedestal there is an argument that that the sort of polarization element comes down to your attachment style um, mm. that you've got sort of the anxiously attached people who are being in quotes needy because I kind of feel like needy is just it's just someone with an unfulfilled need it's not a bad thing yeah. and then at the other end you've got the avoidantly attached people and then in the middle you've got all the secures so who probably aren't on dating apps because that's another thing which tends to come up is that dating apps are full of avoidance and atta- and um, anxiously attached people who make terrible couples. But who are always attracted to each other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, heterosexual relationships, in a way, still seem to be trapped in these like performative gender roles. So, you know, the man is the man's career is paramount. The man is the entrepreneur. Um, women are caring and responsible and overwhelmingly certainly among my generation things like childcare and household chores do still fall to women um is this something you feel the responsibility to tackle yes i'd rather not do it all on my own um but yeah i do, <laughs> I do think um i was actually listening to a great podcast this morning uh, with a guy called steve bidolf who I'm desperate to get on my podcast now because he's an amazing sort of parental psychologist and he talks a lot about relationships and how um, a lot of men have been, especially men of the 20th, 20th century, have been horribly unfathered. And this, this comes from the wars. This comes from mainly, yeah, mainly the wars in the sense that 
um, this stiff upper lip culture that we see in men has left men thinking that their role is to be, as you said, provider and strength, but without emotion. And Steve Bidoff said that the ideal as a father, and I think as a partner and as, as a man, in, in my opinion, is a combination of heart and backbone. So it is, um, you know, you're a man of your word or a person of your words, you're a, uh, a carer in a, in a sort of more traditional sense, but you have emotional capacity, you have the ability to love and to cry and to feel. Um, and I think that for me is, is what a lot of it comes down to is, is that ability to have balance between your, your masculine and your feminine. Have, I think what we quite often see in relationships is um, balance, but the balance comes from the two people balancing each other out rather than balance within the individuals. So within the mother and the father or the, the husband and the wife or the, the boyfriend and the girlfriend, you want both people to have the, the balance and the fluctuation and the ability to move between the masculine energy and the feminine energy so that the strength and the support and the, um, I suppose that that sto almost kind of healthy stoicism and the loving, caring, nurturing element that comes with the feminine energy. So I think that is where we've gone quite skewed in a way in that um, we've seen, I think, again, I think it comes back to patriarchy in a way where as a result of male privilege, you do see men and again, the, the pay gap as well. So privilege plus the pay gap where men are earning more than women on average. And so there is that kind of natural financial element that is, I suppose, adding more fuel to that fire where men feel that they have to be earning. And as a result of earning, feel that they have to provide. And there are, you know, it comes back to parenting a little bit, but there are stats and studies that have shown that a baby, for example, does not recognize, does not acknowledge um, whether it lives in a, a shack or whether it lives in a mansion, but it will pick up on quality time, facial expressions, stress, emotions. And so if you're working 50 hour weeks and never spending any time with your partner or with your kids, that is going to be more damaging than living in a less nice house. So I think it comes down sort of to values and, and priorities. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm 27 and I'm kind of starting, I guess, gradually to think about marriage and, and family. And I know in myself and I, I'd like to, through the podcast and through the work I do, I think, you know, the, the work is from raising boys differently so that they turn into men, so that they turn into fathers, so that they can repeat that cycle. And so it's that knock-on effect of how do we raise our boys to become the sons, partners, husbands, fathers that have been missing for a large number of, you know, our grandfathers, our fathers, our great-grandfathers throughout the over the years so I don't know if that quite answered the original question but um, 
it felt like it went off in a little bit of a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to bring it back with sex. Because um, that's a, always, yeah. It is another area where I think gender roles ruin things sometimes. And I wondered if, I think a lot of that comes, because the poll that I put on Instagram about sex was asking people what they thought made great sex. And one of the things that came up the most was connection. And connection to yourself and also to the person you're with. Um, and I, for this podcast, um, interviewed one of the women behind Furley. And their sort of app is all about um, connection. Like you start to have great sex, you start with yourself. And I wondered whether your breath work can sort of feed into that. Yeah, it definitely can. So I'm um, due to be doing some some recordings for guys over at Furley. Um, so yeah, I think, and there was a, an episode of the podcast I did specifically on sex with um, three guys, uh, three friends of mine, and we realised, you know, we all do slightly different things, you know, coaching, breath work, podcast, um, dating, slightly different focuses. And one of the guys said, all of the work that we do here is about getting people out of their heads and into their bodies. It's all about embodiment. I think as a society, we've been become incredibly disconnected from our bodies and our physical experience, the somatic experience, the felt sense. And that, aside from a lot of other things, massively impacts sex in, in a huge, huge way. I think, and I am not an expert by any means, but for so many of us, any sexual issue that we have usually has a hell of a lot more to do with what's going on upstairs than it does mm -hmm. to do with anything in your body, you know, erectile dysfunction or... Um, inability to orgasm or whatever it might be will come from most likely and again i'm not a specialist i would I, i've had conversations with specialists so i do think this is correct in saying that more often than not it's psychological rather than physiological so breath work is can be an incredibly powerful embodiment tool it's an incredible tool for building what we talk about is somatic awareness, so an experience and a connection to your felt senses, what's going on in your body, and also a very good way in the moment to take yourself out of your head and into your body. So that's something, you know, that I find myself, if I do find myself drifting off up into my head, then I'm getting much better at being like, what are the sensations? What can I feel? And I think, again, when it comes to sex, we're very because of porn, because of society, we're very reliant on mental stimulation rather than physical stimulation. So it's, you know, a lot of the advice will be like, close your eyes and think of something hot, think of something that turns you on. And really you should be saying, focus all of your attention in your genitals. What can you feel? What can you actually feel? And yeah, breath can be an amazing way to draw that attention, draw that focus into the body, and also in some cases amplify the sensation. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic, but I think yeah, it comes back to that idea of embodiment and and centering things in the body. I read one really awful statistic um, a couple of years ago that quite a lot of women think about their to do lists when they're <laughs> So I feel like if breath work, and that just made me so sad. 
because obviously sex is amazing. Um, so if breathwork can bring you out of your to-do list or your shopping list and into your actual experience, like that, it must be incredibly powerful. Definitely. And I think um, the other thing as well is, you know, breathwork is an amazing tool. But for me, one of the biggest things I've learned around sex has been around, I guess it's a bit of a theme of what we're talking about with dating apps as well as communication and honesty with within myself, but also with the person that I'm with. And that's not an easy thing. It's an extremely vulnerable container. It's an extremely vulnerable, physically exposed act where we all feel our most vulnerable in a lot of cases. And so communication can be really hard. And I, I interviewed Kate Moyle, um, who's a, a psychosexual therapist, amazing psychosexual therapist. And she said, she came out with this great quote that the, the least likely person we're, the person we're least likely to talk about sex with is the person we're having sex with mm. and that's why so many of us end up as a as a, a partner if we're talking sexually and you're both there in narratives in your own head and no one knows what's going on and most likely if you just opened yourself up to saying oh, i was really worried that that didn't feel good for you or would you mind if you did if we tried this or whatever the conversation is and instantly, it's the same with any conversation around vulnerability. It's like the walls come down and things get better. Like there is no, and it comes back again to that point that I made earlier around not taking things personally. I mm -hmm. think that is important. And the way in which you communicate things is really important as well. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said, a lot to be said on, on the topic, but I think communication and um, embodiment definitely are at the heart of it. So how do you think tackling a narrative like Man Up could change relationships for the better? They'll become more fulfilling for everybody. Um, from, from my perspective, the Man Up narrative, if we see Man Up as a symptom of a bigger picture that is emotional repression, um, and sort of disconnect. It allows men to be more vulnerable. It allows men to be more authentic. It allows men to be more open with themselves and also with their partners. Um, on the flip side, the patriarchy, and again, this is a symptom of the structure, I think is also in some cases, not all created as, uh, an environment where some women don't actually feel comfortable with a man, uh, with a man, with a man being vulnerable with them. So I think it's work from both sides to say, if we're going to encourage men to be more vulnerable, it has to be received and it has to be acknowledged and accepted, so that everyone feels comfortable with that. Not just getting guys to a point where they feel comfortable with it, because if all of a sudden that's going on and it can't be received, yeah. then that only amplifies that fear of the next time when it comes to opening up. So I think really it is a case of just allowing everyone to be a little bit more truthful with themselves and with each other, which is in turn incredibly liberating and it allows us to actually express our needs and have our needs met as a result. There's um, an interesting anecdote that Brene Brown tells about when she was at a book signing um, and a guy came up and asked her to sign three of her books for his wife and daughters. 
And then he asked her at that point, why did she only work with women or write about women? Um, and he, he basically sort of said that the, the women in his life were the ones, he's like, I can't remember the exact phrase, but he was like, they, they are the first people to stop me climbing down off my white horse. As in, they don't want me not to be this figure on a horse who comes in and saves everything. So yeah, what you just said is, is something I hadn't considered recently. So I think, there you go, I was wrong as well. I've missed something too. And again, this is, it's a conversation I bring up relatively rarely. Well, that's not necessarily that true, but there's resistance to bringing it up because the first time I brought it up, I prefaced it with about five minutes of ramble to say, now I'm not talking about all women and I don't want to upset anybody by saying this, but because there is like, again, it's fear of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. And it's actually in a way expressing, is it? Yeah, maybe expressing some female privilege around emotions. You know, women, uh, albeit in some cases are uh, negatively uh, impacted by being emotional women have in most cases full capacity to express their emotional experience in a way that men do not and so there is a bit of privilege in that case and so I do think I certainly find it quite difficult to bring up to say yeah you're telling us to be vulnerable but are you ready for a man to be vulnerable and I think that for me is quite an important message is to say this isn't a one-sided piece of work this is about everybody and I think again that is taking us out of that, that polarization into a, a mid-ground where everyone's saying, okay, well, what can I do to help my partner feel comfortable with that? Because I'm sure if out of the blue, a, you know, a, a strong, stoic, traditional man started blubbering to his wife and, and really opening up out of nowhere, it would probably bring up discomfort. And it might, as you said, I, I'd not heard that before from Brené Brown, but sort of that that stepping off of the white horse if the man has always fulfilled that provider strength you know savior type role then what happens when he decides that he doesn't want to just do that are, are you ready is that the man that you think that you want to be with and mm-hmm. i think that is is a big piece of work and a really important part of it there's definitely some social conditioning to unpick there for sure okay so The last question I always ask people on here is what is your note on vulnerability? So that's basically the one thing you would like people to take away from listening to you on this podcast. Other than that last point around relationships, I think more on vulnerability as a, as a whole is that the word that comes to mind for me and I guess it comes back to one of my core values around freedom is is liberating it's both liberating and contagious in the sense that it it has a knock-on effect it gives other people permission to do the same and and it's liberating both for you as an individual within yourself but also for other people so it's kind of a double win um, and it's never as scary as it feels at the time. Um, so that would be that would be kind of my note. And then there's a quote that I think I use quite a bit, but I think goes quite nicely with that around self-honesty and, and self-reflection and vulnerability, which is that the sources of our greatest suffering are the lies we tell ourselves. 
So all of the points where you're at your lowest or really struggling with something or something feels off, I'd hazard a guess that there's something you're not being honest with yourself about. There's a lie that you're telling yourself. Um, so yeah, that would be my, my note. That's a great one to finish on. So thank you very much, Jamie. That's been really interesting. Thank you for having me. That's been lovely.